Section 18 of The Most Extraordinary Trial of William Palmer by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Ninth Day, May the 23rd. There was a great crowd as usual in court this morning, long before the commencement of the proceedings. The Duke of Wellington, the Earl of Albemarle, Lord Donamore, Lord Dufferin, Lord Feversham, Sir J. Packington, Mr. Harcourt Vernon, General Peel, Mr. Tolomac, Mr. S. Warren, and other members of Parliament were present. The learned judges, Lord Campbell, Mr. Baron Alderson, and Mr. Justice Cresswell, took their seats upon the bench at about ten o'clock, and the prisoner having been placed at the bar, the examination of witnesses for the defence was resumed. No alteration has taken place in the prisoner's demeanour. Counsel for the Crown The Attorney-General, Mr. E. James Q.C., Mr. Wellesby, Mr. Bodkin, and Mr. Huddleston. For the prisoner, Mr. Sergeant Shee, Mr. Grove Q.C., Mr. Gray, and Mr. Keneally. Mr. J. B. Ross, examined by Mr. Grove. I am house-surgeon to the London Hospital. I recollect a case of tetanus being brought into the hospital on the 22nd of March last. A man, aged 37, was brought in about half-past seven o'clock in the evening. He had had one paroxysm in the receiving room. His pulse was rapid and feeble. His jaws were closed and fixed. There was an expression of anxiety about the countenance. The features were sunken. He was unable to swallow, and the muscles of the abdomen and the back were somewhat tense. After he had been in the ward about ten minutes, he had another paroxysm, and his body became arched. It lasted about a minute. He was afterwards quieter for a few minutes, and then he had another attack, and died. The whole lasted about half an hour. There was an inquest held on the body. It was examined, and no poison was found. I think tetanus was the cause of death. There were three wounds on the body, two at the back of the right elbow, each about the size of a shilling, and one on the left elbow, about the size of a sixpence. The man had had those wounds for twelve or sixteen years. They were old chronic indurated ulcers, circular in outline, the edges thickened and rounded, and covered with a white coating, without any granulation. I am unable to say what was the origin of those ulcers, but I have seen other wounds like them. I have seen old chronic syphilitic wounds like them in other places. Those wounds were the only things which would account for tetanus. Cross-examined by the Attorney-General I ascertained that poultices had been applied to the wounds a day or two before, but I am not certain as to the exact time. The man's wife had objected to their application. They were made of linseed meal. The man's jaws were fixed so as to render him perfectly incapable of swallowing anything. He said he had first been taken with symptoms of lockjaw at eleven o'clock, as he told me at dinner. But as he told my colleague at breakfast, he was able to speak, but could not open the jaw. That is a symptom of tetanus. There were symptoms of rigidity about the abdominal and lumbar muscles. He did not say how long he had felt that rigidity. I gathered that some other medical man, a surgeon, had seen him in the afternoon before he came to the hospital, 
but I am not certain as to that. He was a labouring man. Have you any doubt that the disease had been coming on since morning? No doubt at all. The sores were ugly sores of a chronic character, ulcers. There was an integument which connected the two on the right arm, so that they would be likely to run into one another. The wounds continued under the skin, and there were no signs of healing. They had the appearance of old neglected sores. They were at the seat of the ulnar nerve, a very sensitive nerve, that which is commonly called the funny bone. I believe he had successive paroxysms all the afternoon before he came to the hospital. I think his attack arose from tetanus. My opinion is founded upon the facts that he had had wounds, that he had died of spasms, that he had lockjaw, that the muscles of the abdomen and back were rigid, and that he complained of pain in the stomach. I did not hear the account of the symptoms of Cook's death. An affection of the ulnar nerve was peculiarly liable to produce tetanus. Re-examined by Mr. Grove. Strychnine was suspected in that case. The nerves of the tongue are very delicate, as are also those of the throat and forces. I have read descriptions of tetanus in the books. The case described by Mr. Gay was idiopathic, having been caused by a cold. An injury to any delicate nerve would decidedly be a cause of tetanus. Mr. Reiner's Mantel, examined by Mr. Gray. I am a house surgeon at the London Hospital. I saw the case mentioned by Mr. Ross, and his statement with respect to the symptoms is correct. In my judgment, the disease of which the patient died was tetanus, produced by the sores on the arms. Dr. Wrightson, examined by Mr. Keneally. I was a pupil of Liebig at Gießen. I am a teacher of chemistry in a school in Birmingham. I have studied the nature and acquired a knowledge of poisons, and I have been engaged by the Crown in the detection of poison in a prosecution. I have experimented upon strychnia. I have found no extraordinary difficulties in the detection of strychnia. It is certainly to be detected by the usual tests. I have tested and discovered it both pure and mixed with impure matter after decomposition has set in. I have detected it in a mixture of bile, bilious matter, and putrefying blood. Strychnia can be discovered in the tissues. I have discovered it in the viscera of a cat, in the blood of one dog, and in the urine of another dog, both of them having been poisoned by strychnia. I am of opinion that strychnia does not undergo decomposition in the act of poisoning or in entering into the circulation. If it underwent such a change, if it were decomposed, I should say it would not be possible to discover it in the tissues. It might possibly be changed into a substance in which, however, it would still be detectable. It can be discovered in extremely minute quantities indeed. When I detected it in the blood of a dog, I had given the animal two grains. To the second dog, I gave one grain, and I detected it in the urine. Half a grain was intended to have been given to the cat, but a considerable portion of it was lost. Assuming that a man was poisoned by strychnine, and if his stomach was sent to me for analysation within five or six days after death, I have no doubt that I should find it generally. If a man had been poisoned by strychnine, I should certainly expect to detect it. 
cross-examined by the Attorney-General. Supposing that the whole dose were absorbed into the system, where would you expect to find it? In the blood. Does it pass from the blood into the solids of the body? It does, or, I should rather say, it is left in the solids of the body. In its progress towards its final destination, the destruction of life, it passes from the blood, or is left by the blood in the solid tissues of the body. If it be present in the stomach, you find it in the stomach. If it be present in the blood, you find it in the blood. If it be left by the blood in the tissues, you find it in the tissues? Precisely so. Suppose the whole had been absorbed, then I would not undertake to find it. Suppose the whole had been eliminated from the blood and had passed into the urine, should you expect to find any in the blood? Certainly not. Suppose that the minimum dose which will destroy life had been taken and absorbed into the circulation, then deposited in the tissues, and then a part of it eliminated by the action of the kidneys, where should you search for it? In the blood, in the tissues, and in the ejections, and I would undertake to discover it in each of them. Re-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee. Suppose you knew a man to have been killed by strychnia, administered to him one and a half hours before he died. In your judgment, would that strychnia certainly be detected in the stomach in the first instance? Yes. Suppose it to have been administered in the shape of pills, and completely absorbed and got out of the stomach, would it still be found? I can't tell. If it were found, it would be in the liver and kidneys. Could it be detected under those circumstances in the coats of the stomach? Not knowing the dose administered and the power of absorption, I cannot say that it would certainly be detected, but probably it could. When death has taken place after one paroxysm, and an hour and a half after ingestion of the poison, can you form an opinion as to whether the dose was considerable or inconsiderable? I cannot. Mr. Baron Alderson how do you suppose strychnine acts when taken into the stomach? I cannot form an opinion. Mr. Baron Alderson, it goes, I suppose, from the stomach to the blood, and from the blood somewhere else, and arriving at that somewhere else, it kills. Lord Campbell, I cannot allow this witness to leave the box without expressing my high approbation of the manner in which he has given his evidence. Mr. Sergeant Shee requested to be allowed to ask the witness whether a strong dose was likely to pass through all the stages his lordship had mentioned. Mr. Baron Alderson, that depends on where the killing takes place. Professor Partridge, examined by Mr. Grove. I have been many years in extensive practice as a surgeon, and I am a professor of anatomy in King's College. I have heard the evidence as to Cook's symptoms and post-mortem examination. I have heard the statements as to the granules that were found on his spine. They would be likely to cause inflammation, and no doubt that inflammation would have been discovered if the spinal cord or its membranes had been examined shortly after death. It would not be likely to be discovered if the spinal cord was not examined until nine weeks after death. I have not seen cases in which this inflammation has produced tetanic form of convulsions, but such cases are on record. It sometimes does, and sometimes does not, produce convulsions and death. Can you form any judgment as to the cause of death in Cook's case? 
I cannot. No conclusion or inference can be drawn from the degree or kind of the contractions of the body after death. Lord Campbell. Can you not say, from the symptoms you heard, whether death was produced by tetanus, without saying that it was the cause of tetanus? Witness. Hypothetically, I should infer that he died of the form of tetanus which convulses the muscles. Great varieties of rigidity arise after death from natural causes. The half-bent hands and fingers are not uncommon after natural death. The arching of the feet, in this case, seemed to me rather greater than usual. Cross-examined by the Attorney General. Granules are sometimes, but not commonly, found about the spine of a healthy subject. Not on the cord itself, they may exist consistently with health. No satisfactory cases of the inflammation I have described have come under my notice without producing convulsions. It is a very rare disease. I cannot state from the recorded cases the course of the symptoms of that disease. It varies in duration, sometimes lasting only for days, sometimes much longer. If the patient lives, it is accompanied with paralysis. It produces no effect upon the brain, which is recognizable after death. It would not affect the brain prior to death. I do not know whether it is attended with loss of sensibility before death. The size of the granules, which will produce it, varies. This disease is not a matter of months, unless it terminates in palsy. I never heard of a case in which the patient died after a single convulsion. Between the intervals of the convulsions, I don't believe a man could have twenty-four hours repose. Pain and spasms would accompany the convulsions. I cannot form a judgment as to whether the general health would be affected in the intervals between them. You have heard it stated that from the midnight of Monday till Tuesday, Cook had complete repose. Now I ask you, in the face of the medical profession, whether you think the symptoms which have been described proceeded from that disease. I should think not. Did you ever know the hands completely clinched after death, except in case of tetanus? No. Have you ever known it even in idiopathic or traumatic tetanus? I have never seen idiopathic tetanus. I have seen the hands completely clinched in traumatic tetanus. A great deal of force is often required to separate them. Have you ever known the foot so distorted as to assume the form of a club foot? No. You heard Mr. Jones state that if he had turned the body upon the back, it would have rested on the head and the heels. Have you any doubt that that is an indication of death from tetanus? No. It is a form of tetanic spasm. I am only acquainted with tetanus resulting from strychnine by reading. Some of the symptoms in Cook's case are consistent, some are inconsistent, with strychnine tetanus. The first inconsistent symptom is the interval that occurred between the taking of the supposed poison and the attacks. Are not symptoms of bending of the body, difficulty of respiration, convulsions in the throat, legs and arms, perfectly consistent with what you know of the symptoms of death from strychnine? Perfectly consistent. I have known cases of traumatic tetanus. The symptoms in those cases have been occasionally remitted, never wholly remitted. I never knew traumatic tetanus run its course to death in less than three or four days. I never knew a complete case of the operation of strychnine upon a human subject. Bearing in mind the distinction between traumatic and idiopathic tetanus, 
"'Did you ever know of such a death as that of Cook, "'according to the symptoms you have heard described?' "'No.' "'Re-examined by Mr. Grove. "'Besides the symptoms which I have mentioned "'as being inconsistent with the theory of death by strychnine, "'there are others, namely sickness, beating the bedclothes, "'want of sensitiveness to external impressions, "'and sudden cessation of the convulsions "'and apparent complete recovery.' There was apparently an absence of the usual muscular agitation. Symptoms of convulsive character arising from an injury to the spine vary considerably in their degrees of violence, in their periods of intermission, and in the muscles which are attacked. Intermission of the disease occurs, but is not frequent, in traumatic tetanus. I don't remember that death has ever taken place in fifteen hours. It may take place in 48 hours during convulsions. Granules about the spine are more unusual in young people than in old. I don't know of any case in which the spine can preserve its integrity, so as to be properly examined for a period of nine weeks. I should not feel justified in inferring that there was no disease from not finding any at the end of that time. A period of decomposition varies from a few hours to a few days. It is not in the least probable that it could be delayed for nine weeks. By the Attorney General. Supposing the stomach were acted on by other causes, I do not think sickness would be inconsistent with tetanus. John Gay, examined by Mr. Gray. I am a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons, and I have been a surgeon to the Royal Free Hospital. A case of traumatic tetanus in a boy came under my observation in that hospital in 1843. The patient was brought in during the time he was ill. He was brought on the 28th of July and died on the 2nd of August. He had met with an accident a week before. During the first three days he had paroxysms of unusual severity. His mother complained that he could not open his mouth and he complained of stiff neck. During the night he started up and was convulsed. On the following night he was again convulsed. At times the abdominal muscles, as well as those of the legs and back, were rigid. The muscles of the face were also in a state of great contraction. On the following third day he was in the same state. At two o'clock there was much less rigidity of the muscles, especially those of the abdomen and back. On the following morning, the muscular rigidity had gone. He opened his mouth and was able to talk. He was thoroughly relieved. He had no return of spasms till half-past five the following day. He then asked the nurse to change his linen, and as she lifted him up in the bed to do so, violent convulsions of the arms and face came on, and he died in a few minutes. About thirty hours elapsed between the preceding convulsion and the one which terminated his life. Before the paroxysm came on, the rigidity had been completely relaxed. I had given the patient tartar emetic, containing antimony, in order to produce vomiting on the second day. It produced no effect. I gave a larger dose on the third day, which also produced no effect. I gave no more after the third day. Cross-examined by the Attorney General the accident which had happened to him was that a large stone had fallen upon the middle toe of the left foot and completely smashed it. The wound had become very unhealthy. I amputated the toe. The mouth was almost closed up when I first saw him. 
the jaw remained closed until the first of august but i could manage to get a small quantity of tartar emetic into the mouth the convulsions were intermitted during the day but the muscles of the body chest abdomen back and neck were all rigid and continued so for the two days on which i administered tartar emetic rigidity of the muscles of the chest and stomach would no doubt go far to prevent vomiting the symptoms began to abate on the morning of the first of august the fourth day and gradually subsided until the rigidity entirely wore off i then thought he was going to get well the wound might have been rubbed against the bed when he was raised but i don't think it probable some peculiar irritation of the nerves would give rise to the affection of the spinal cord no doubt the death took place in consequence of something produced by the injury to the toe re-examined by mr gray there may be various causes for that irritation of the spinal cord which ends in tetanic convulsions it would be very difficult merely from seeing symptoms of tetanus and in the absence of all knowledge as to how it had been occasioned to ascribe it to any particular cause dr w macdonald examined by mr keneally i am a licentiate of the royal college of surgeons of edinburgh i have been in practice for fourteen years and have had considerable experience practical and theoretical of idiopathic and traumatic tetanus i have seen two cases of idiopathic tetanus and have made that disease the subject of medical research tetanus will proceed from very slight causes an alteration of the secretions of the body exposure to cold or damp or mental excitement would cause it sensual excitement would produce it the presence of gritty granules in the spine or brain might produce tetanic convulsions i have seen cases in which small gritty tubercles in the brain were the only assignable cause of death which had resulted from convulsions i believe that in addition to the slight causes which i have named tetanic convulsions result from causes as yet undiscoverable by human science in many post-mortem examinations of the body of persons who had died from tetanus no trace of any disease could be discovered beyond congestion or vascularity of some of the vessels surrounding the nerves strychnia however is very easily discoverable by a scientific man i remember the case of a woman catherine watson who is now present and who was attacked with idiopathic tetanus on the twentieth of october eighteen fifty five the witness read a report of the circumstances attending this case the subject of which was a young woman twenty-two years of age who after going about her ordinary occupation during the day was attacked with tetanus at ten o'clock at night by the administration of chloroform the violence of the spasms was gradually diminished and she recovered after her recovery she slept for thirty-six hours in that case there was lockjaw which set in about the middle of the attack it is generally a late symptom i had a patient named coopland who died of tetanus it must have been idiopathic as there was no external cause the patient died in somewhat less than half an hour before i could reach the house i have made a number of experiments upon animals with reference to strychnia poison i have found the post-mortem appearances very generally to concur the vessels of the membranes of the brain have generally been highly congested 
the sinuses gorged with blood in one case there was hemorrhage from the nostrils that was a case of very high congestion in some cases there have been an extraversation of blood at the base of the brain i have cut through the substance of the brain and have found in it numerous red points the lungs have been either collapsed or congested the heart has invariably been filled with blood on the right side and very often on the left side too the liver has been congested the kidneys and spleen generally healthy the vessels of the stomach on the outer surface have been congested and on the mucous or inner surface highly vascular the vessels of the membranes of the spinal cord have been congested and sometimes red points have been displayed on cutting it through from a post-mortem examination you may generally judge of the cause of death i have in a great many cases experimented for the discovery of strychnia you may discover in the stomach the smallest dose that will kill if you kill with a grain you may discover traces of it by traces i mean evidences of its presence you can discover the fifty thousandth part of a grain i have actually experimented so as to discover that quantity the decomposition of strychnia is a theory which no scientific man of eminence has ever before propounded i first heard of that theory in this court in my opinion there is no well-grounded reason whatever for it it has disproved the theory by numerous experiments i have taken the blood of an animal poisoned by two grains of strychnia about the least quantity which would destroy life and have injected it into the abdominal cavities of smaller animals and have destroyed them with all the symptoms and post-mortem appearances of poisoning by strychnia strychnia being administered in pills would not affect its detection if the pills were hard they would keep it together but you might find its remains more easily i do not agree with dr taylor that colour tests are fallacious i believe that such tests are a reliable mode of ascertaining the presence of strychnia i have invariably found strychnia in the urine which has been ejected strychnia cannot be confounded with pyrozanthi after strychnia has been administered there is an increased flow of saliva in my experiments that has been a very marked symptom animals to which strychnia has been given have always been very susceptible to touch the stamp of a foot or a sharp word would throw them into convulsions even before the paroxysms commenced touching them would be likely to throw them into tonic convulsions lord campbell as soon as the poison is swallowed no it would be after a certain time the first symptom of poisoning must have been developed examination continued i do not think rubbing them would give them relief i think it extremely improbable that a man who had taken a dose of strychnia sufficient to destroy life could after the symptoms had made their appearance pull a bell violently i have attended to the evidence as to cook's symptoms to the symptoms i attach little importance as a means of diagnosis because you may have the same symptoms developed by many different causes a dose of strychnia sufficient to destroy life would hardly require an hour and a half for its absorption i think that death was in this case caused by epileptic convulsions with tetanic complications i form that opinion from the post-mortem appearances being so different from those that i have described as attending poison with strychnia 
but from the supposition that a dose of strychnia sufficient to destroy life in one paroxysm could not, so far as I am aware, have required even an hour for its absorption before the commencement of the attack. If the attack were of an epileptic character, the interval between the attacks of Monday and Tuesday would be natural, as epileptic seizures very often recur at about the same hours of successive days. Assuming that a man was in so excited a state of mind that he was silenced for two or three minutes after his horse had won a race, that he exposed himself to cold and damp, excited his brain by drink, and was attacked by violent vomiting, and that after his death deposits of gritty granules were found in the neighbourhood of the spinal cord, would these causes be likely to produce such a death as that of Cook? Any one of these causes would assist in the production of such a death. As a congeries, would they be still more likely to produce it? Yes. Cross-examined by the Attorney-General. I am a general practitioner and am parochial medical officer. I have had personal experience of two cases of idiopathic tetanus. What I have said about mental and sensual excitement and so on has not come within my own observation. In the case of Catherine Watson, I saw the patient at about half-past ten at night. She had been ill nearly an hour, and had five or six spasms. She had gone about her usual duties up to evening. She felt a slight lassitude for two days previous to the attack. It was only by close pressing that I ascertained that lockjaw came on about an hour or two after I was called in. The case of Coopland was that of a young child between three and four years old. I was attending the mother, and saw the child in good health half an hour before it came on. It was seized with spasm, and what I conjectured to be of the diaphragm, and died in about half an hour. I had seen the child asleep, but I did not examine him. I don't know whether I saw the face of the child, but it was in bed. I judged that it was asleep. Is that the same as seeing it asleep? Sometimes a medical man can form a better judgment than a lawyer. Mr. Smith applied to me to be a witness in this case. I communicated to him the case of Catherine Watson as resembling the case of Cook. I furnished my notes to be copied the night before last. I have been here since the commencement of the trial. I have been at all the consultations. I began the experiments for this case in January. I have made experiments before. That was eight or ten years ago. I then found out that strychnia could be discovered by chemical and physiological tests. I killed dogs, cats, rabbits, and fowls. The doses I administered were from three quarters up to two grains. To dogs, the smallest quantity administered was a grain. In four cases, I killed with one grain, five with a grain and a half, one with a grain and a quarter, and two with two grains. I never killed a dog with half a grain of strychnia, and therefore never experimented to find that quantity after death. I have always found the brain and heart highly congested. The immediate course of the fullness of the heart is that the spasm drives the blood from the small capillaries into the large vessels. The spasm of the respiratory muscles prevents the expansion of the lungs. One lasted five or six days, the other six or seven days, and the patient recovered. I have never seen a case of strychnia in the human subject, 
so far as i can judge cook's was a case of epileptic convulsions with tetanic complications nobody can say from what epilepsy proceeds i have not arrived at any opinion on the subject i have seen one death from epilepsy the patient was not conscious when he died i can't mention a case in which a patient dying from epilepsy has preserved his consciousness to the time of death you have been reading up on the subject i am pretty well up in most branches of medicine a laugh i know of no case in which a patient dying from epilepsy has been conscious my opinion is cook died of epileptic convulsions with tetanic complications by lord campbell that is a disease well known to physicians it is mentioned in dr copland's dictionary examination continued i believe that all convulsive diseases including the epileptic forms and the various tetanic complications arise from the decomposition of the blood acting upon the nerves any mental excitement might have caused cook's attack cook was excited at shrewsbury and wherever there is excitement there is consequent depression i think cook was afterwards depressed when a man is lying in bed and vomiting he must be depressed this gentleman was much overjoyed as his horse winning and do you think he vomited in consequence it might predispose him to vomit i am not speaking of mites do you think that the excitement of the three minutes on the course at shrewsbury on the tuesday accounts for the vomiting on the wednesday night i do not i find no symptoms of excitement or depression reported between that time and the time of his death the white spots found in the stomach of the deceased might by producing an inflammatory condition of the stomach have brought on the convulsions which caused death the attorney-general but the gentlemen who made the post-mortem examination say that the stomach was not inflamed witness there were white spots which cannot exist without inflammation there must have been inflammation the attorney-general but these gentlemen say that there was not inflammation witness i do not believe them a laugh sensual excitement might cause epileptic convulsions with tetanic complications the chancre and syphilitic sores were evidence that cook had undergone such excitement that might have occurred before he was at shrewsbury might sexual intercourse produce epilepsy a fortnight after it occurred there is an instance on record in which epilepsy supervened upon the very act of intercourse have you any instance in which epilepsy came on a fortnight afterwards a laugh it is within the range of possibility do you mean as a serious man of science to say that the results might what results were there in this case the chancre and the syphilitic sores did you ever dream of such a thing i never heard of it did you ever hear of any other form of syphilitic disease producing epilepsy no but tetanus the attorney-general but you say this was epilepsy we are not talking of tetanus witness you forget the tetanic complications roars of laughter the attorney-general if i understand right then it stands thus the sexual excitement produces epilepsy and the chancre superad tetanic complications witness i say that the results of sexual excitement produce epilepsy 
Mr. Baron Alderson said he had heard some person in court clap his hands. On an occasion on which a man is being tried for his life, such a display was most indecent. Examination continued. I cannot remember any fatal case of poisoning by strychnia in which so long a period as an hour and a half intervened between the taking of the poison and the appearance of the first symptoms. What would be the effect of morphia given a day or two previously? Would it not retard the action of the poison? No, I have seen opium bring on convulsions very nearly similar. What quantity? A grain and a half. From my experience, I think that if morphia had been given a day or two before, it would have accelerated the action of the strychnia. I have seen opium bring on epileptic convulsions. If this were a case of poisoning by strychnia, I should suppose that as both opium and strychnia produce congestion of the brain, the two would act together, and would have a more speedy effect. If congestion of the brain was coming on when morphia was given to Cook on the Sunday and Monday nights, it might have increased rather than allayed it. But the gentleman who examined the body said that there was no congestion after death. But Dr. Bamford says there was. You stick to Dr. Bamford? Yes, I do, because he was a man of experience, could judge much better than younger men, and he was not so likely to be mistaken. But Dr. Bamford said that Cook died of apoplexy. Do you think this was apoplexy? No, it was not. What, then, do you think of Dr. Bamford, who certified that it was? That was a matter of opinion, but the existence of congestion in the brain he saw. The Attorney-General, the other medical men, said there was none. Lord Campbell, that is rather a matter of reasoning than of evidence. Re-examined by Mr. Sergeant Shee. I have seen a great many children asleep, and can tell whether they are so without seeing their faces. In the case of the child who died of tetanus, the mother had told me that it was asleep. Dr. Mason Good is a well-known author upon convulsions. From my reading of his work and others, I have learned that there are convulsions which are not, strictly speaking, epilepsy, although they resemble it in some of its features. I also know the works of Monsieur Esquirol. From reading those and other works, I know that epileptic convulsions sufficiently violent to cause death frequently occur without the patient entirely losing his consciousness. Epilepsy, properly so called, is sudden in its attack. The patient falls down at once with the shriek. That disease occurs very often at night and in bed. It sometimes happens that during such convulsions actual epilepsy comes on, and the patient dies of an internal spasm. It sometimes happens that its existence is known to a young man's family without his knowing anything about it. Convulsions of an epileptic character are sometimes preceded by premonitory symptoms. It sometimes happens that during such convulsions actual epilepsy comes on, and the patient dies of an internal spasm. It often happens that, if a patient has suffered from epilepsy and convulsions of an epileptic kind during the night, he may as well be next day as if nothing had happened, more especially when an adult is seized for the first time. In such cases, it often happens that such fits succeed each other within a short period. I heard the deposition of Dr. Bamford. 
if it were true that the mind of the deceased were distressed and irritable the night before his death i should say that he was suffering from depression from what cook said about his madness in the middle of the sunday night i should infer that he had been seized by some sudden cramp or spasm supposing that there was no such cramp i should refer what he said to nervous and mental excitement there might be some disturbance of the brain i do not believe that inflammation can be absent while spots on the stomach be present about eighteen months ago i examined the stomach of a person who had died from fever in which i found white spots i consulted various authors in an essay on the stomach by dr sprodboyne a medical man who practised in edinburgh i found mention of similar spots in the stomach of a young woman who had died suddenly dr bainbridge examined by mr grove i am a doctor of medicine and medical officer to the st martin's workhouse i have had much experience of convulsive disorders such disorders present great variety of symptoms they vary as to the frequency of the occurrence and as to the muscles affected periodicity or recurrence at the same hours days or months is common i had a case in which a patient had an attack on one christmas night and on the following christmas night at the same hour he had a similar attack the various forms of convulsions so run into each other that it is almost impossible for the most experienced medical men to state where one terminates and the other begins in both males and females hysteria is frequently attended by tetanic convulsions epileptic attacks are frequently accompanied by tetanic complications cross-examined by the attorney-general hysteric convulsions very rarely end in death i have known one case in which they have done so that occurred within the last three months it was the case of a male it occurred in st martin's workhouse the man had for years been subject to this complaint on the occasion on which he died he was ill only a few minutes i did not make a post-mortem examination i was told he was seized with sudden convulsions fell down on the ground and in five minutes was dead there was slight clinching of the hands but i think no locking of the jaw the man was about thirty-five years of age he was the brother of the celebrated aeronaut lieutenant gale in many cases of this description consciousness is destroyed it is not so in all i have met with violent cases in which it has been preserved i never knew a case in which during the paroxysm the patient spoke epilepsy is sometimes attended with opisthotonus i have seen cases of traumatic tetanus in such cases the patient retains his consciousness i have known many cases of epilepsy ending in death loss of consciousness not universally but generally accompanies epilepsy i never knew a case of death from that disease where consciousness was not destroyed i have known ten or twelve such fatal cases re-examined by mr grove persons almost invariably fall asleep after an epileptic attack the attorney-general and after taking opium yes edward austin steady examined by mr gray i am a member of the royal college of surgeons and am in practice at chatham in june eighteen fifty four i attended a person named sarah ann taylor for trismus and pleurotothonus when i first saw the patient she was bent to one side the convulsions came on in paroxysms 
The pleurotothonos and trismus lasted about a fortnight. The patient then so far recovered as to be able to walk about. About a twelve-month afterwards, on the 3rd of March, 1855, she was again seized. That seizure lasted about a week. She is still alive. The friends of the patient said that the disease was brought on by depression, arising from a quarrel with her husband. Cross-examined by Mr. James. I do not know how long before the attack this quarrel occurred. During it, the woman received a blow on her side from her husband. During the whole fortnight, the lockjaw or trismus continued. In March 1855, she was under my care about a week, during the whole of which the trismus continued. Dr. George Robinson, examined by Mr. Keneally. I am a licentiate of the Royal College of Physicians and physician to the Newcastle-on-Tyne Dispensary and Fever Hospital. I have devoted considerable attention to the subject of pathology. I have practised as a physician for ten years. I have heard the whole of the medical evidence in this case. From the symptoms described, I should say that Cook died of tetanic convulsions, by which I mean not the convulsions of tetanus, but convulsions similar to those witnessed in that disease. The convulsions of epilepsy sometimes assume a tetanic appearance. I know no department of pathology more obscure than that of convulsive diseases. I have witnessed post-mortem examinations after death from convulsive diseases, and have sometimes seen no morbid appearance whatever, and in other cases the symptoms were applicable to a great variety of diseases. Convulsive diseases are always connected with the condition of the nerves. The brain has a good deal to do with the production of convulsive diseases, but the spinal cord has more. I believe that gritty granules in the region of the spinal cord would be very likely to produce convulsions, and I think they would be likely to be very similar to those described in the present case. I think that from what I have heard described of the mode of life of the deceased, it would have predisposed him to epilepsy. I have witnessed some experiments with strychnia, and have performed a few. I have also prescribed it in cases of paralysis. By the Attorney General I have seen twenty cases where epilepsy has been attended by convulsions of a tetanic character. I have never seen the symptoms of epilepsy proceed to anything like the extent of the symptoms in Cook's case. I never saw a body in a case of epilepsy so stiff as to rest upon the head and the heels. I never knew such symptoms to arise in any case except tetanus. When epilepsy presents any of these extreme forms, it is always accompanied by unconsciousness. In almost every case of epilepsy, the patient is unconscious at the time of the attack. In cases of epilepsy, I have found gritty granules on the brain, and any disturbing cause in the system, I think, would be likely to produce convulsions. I believe that the granules in this case were very likely to have irritated the spinal cord, and yet that no indication of that irritation would have remained after death. I think that these granules might have produced the death of Mr. Cook. The Attorney General. Do you think that they did so? Witness. Putting aside the assumption of death by strychnia, I should say so. The Attorney General. Are not all the symptoms spoken to by Mr. Jones indicative of death by strychnia? Witness. They certainly are. 
the Attorney-General. Then it comes to this, that if there were no other cause of death suggested, you would say that the death in this case arose from epilepsy. Witness. Yes. By Sergeant Shee. Epilepsy is a well-known form of disease which includes many others. Dr. Richardson said, I am a physician practicing in London. I have never seen a case of tetanus properly so called, but I have seen many cases of death by convulsions. In many instances they have presented tetanic appearances without being strictly tetanus. I have seen the muscles fixed, especially those of the upper part of the body. I have observed the arms stiffened out, and the hands closely and firmly clinched, until death. I have also observed a sense of suffocation in the patient. In some forms of convulsions I have seen contortions both of the legs and the feet, and the patient generally expresses a wish to sit up. I have known persons die of a disease called angina pectoris. The symptoms of that disease, I consider, resemble closely those of Mr. Cook. Angina pectoris comes under the denomination of spasmodic diseases. In some cases, the disease is detectable upon post-mortem examination. In others, it is not. I attended one case. A girl ten years old was under my care in 1850. I supposed she had suffered from scarlet fever. She recovered so far that my visits ceased. I left her amused and merry in the morning. At half-past ten in the evening I was called in to see her, and I found her dying. She was supported upright at her own request. Her face was pale, the muscles of the face rigid, the arms rigid, the fingers clinched, the respiratory muscles completely fixed and rigid, and with all this there was combined intense agony and restlessness such as I have never witnessed. There was perfect consciousness. The child knew me, described her agony, and eagerly took some brandy and water from the spoon. I left for the purpose of obtaining some chloroform from my own house, which was thirty yards distant. When I returned, her head was drawn back, and I could detect no respiration. The eyes were then fixed open, and the body just resembled a statue. She was dead. On the following day I made a post-mortem examination. The brain was slightly congested. The upper part of the spinal cord seemed healthy. The lungs were collapsed. The heart was in such a state of firm spasm and solidity, and so emptied of blood, that I remarked that it might have been rinsed out. I could not discover any appearance of disease that would account for the death, except a slight effusion of serum in one pleural cavity. I never could ascertain any cause for the death. The child went to bed well and merry, and immediately afterwards jumped up, screamed, and exclaimed, I am going to die by the Attorney-General. I consider that the symptoms I have described were those of angina pectoris. It is the opinion of Dr. Jenner that this disease is occasioned by the ossification of some of the small vessels of the heart. I did not find that to be the case in this instance. There have been many cases where no cause whatever was discovered. It is called angina pectoris, from its causing such extreme anguish to the chest. I do not think the symptoms I have described were such as would result from taking strychnia. There is this difference, that rubbing the hands gives ease to the patient in cases of angina pectoris. 
I must say there will be great difficulty in detecting the difference in the cases of angina pectoris and strychnia. As regards symptoms, I know of no difference between the two. I am bound to say that if I had known so much of these subjects as I do now, in the case I have referred to, I should have gone on to analysis to endeavour to detect strychnia. In the second case I discovered organic disease of the heart, which was quite sufficient to account for the symptoms. The disease of angina pectoris comes on quite suddenly, and does not give any notice of its approach. I did not send any note of this case to any medical publication. It is not at all an uncommon occurrence to find the hands firmly clinched after death in cases of natural disease. By Mr. Sergeant Shee, there are cases of angina pectoris in which the patient has recovered and appeared perfectly well for a period of twenty-four hours, and then the attack has returned. I am of opinion that the fact of the recurrence of the second fit in Cook's case is more the symptom of angina pectoris than of strychnia poison. Dr. Wrightson was recalled, and in answer to a question put by Sergeant Shee, he said it was his opinion that when the strychnia poison was absorbed in the system, it was diffused throughout the entire system. By the Attorney General, the longer time that elapsed before the death would render the absorption more complete. If a minimum dose to destroy life were given, and a long interval elapsed to the death, the more complete would be the absorption, and the less the chance of finding it in the stomach. By Sergeant Shee, I should expect still to find it in the spleen, the liver, and blood. Catherine Watson said, I live in Garnkirk, near Glasgow. I was attacked with a fit in October of last year. I had no wound of any kind on my body when I was attacked. I did not take any poison. By the Attorney General, I was taken ill at night. I had felt heavy all day from the morning, but had no pain till night. The first pain I felt was in my stomach, and then I had cramp in my arms, and after that I was quite insensible. I have no recollection of anything after I was first attacked, except that I was bled. Sergeant Shee then said that he was now about to enter into another part of the case for the defence, and, probably, the court would think it a convenient period to adjourn. The Lord Chief Justice said that the court had no objection to adjourn if the learned sergeant thought it would be a convenient time to do so. The Attorney General requested that before the court was formally adjourned, a witness named Saunders, whose name was upon the back of the bill, and who was not in attendance, and who, he believed, had not made his appearance during the trial, should be called upon his recognizances. He added that he believed this witness was also subpoenaed on behalf of the prisoner, but he, the Attorney-General, intended to have called him for the Crown. The court directed that the witness should be called upon his recognizances, and this was done, but he did not appear. The court then adjourned until ten o'clock on Saturday morning. End of section 18